The Football Show on Off The Ball with Sky. Watch every live Premier League game this season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. I'm prepared to do anything I can well, to do play it then. country again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Welcome along to the football show here on Off The Ball. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking to Miguel Delaney, who was at Old Trafford last evening for Manchester United's 2-1 victory against Liverpool. We'll also be looking at some of the moves that could potentially happen in the transfer window between now and the deadline shutting at the end of next week. But delighted to say to kick off the football show, which is brought to you by Sky, where you can watch over 400 games this season from the Premier League, the Women's Super League, the Scottish Premiership and EFL live on Sky Sports. We've got Republic of Ireland legend and, of course, friend of the show, Kevin Kilbam with us. Kev, how are you getting on? I'm good, Will. How's things? Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Um, generally, I yeah, kind of... I know. It's been a long time, eh? Yeah, it's been a while since we've had a chat. Um, kind of follow along on social media and uh, generally see the clips every now and again uh, popping up with you talking about Canada going to the World Cup and uh, Major League <laughs> Soccer at the moment. And hey, Look, it's not a bad time to be following Toronto, Kev. I see Insigne has gone to Toronto. Yeah, Insigne Bernadeschi, um, uh, Cresciato as well, who um, obviously has had a, a good career in Italy and, uh, and Russia for a while as well. So they signed the three Italian boys through through this window, and they're in they're in a bit of trouble actually. Will they're in a bit of trouble? Probably still in a bit of trouble now. It's a bad defeat at the weekend. They've pretty much got to win or take points out of every game now to the end of the season to make the playoffs. But it, it's definitely exciting. I don't know if anyone's seen some of the goals that have been scored over the last few weeks by uh, by Toronto. There's been some special goals particularly last weekend from Insigne himself with the, with the beauty, yeah. There's always been a bit of an Italian connection with the city of Toronto, just with immigration into the city, but how come these Italian-European championship winners are going to Toronto now? Well, I, I believe um, Toronto's, uh, outside Italy, they have the biggest population outside uh, New York. I think it's the second biggest uh, population outside New York um, of, of, em- of immigration, so... That probably says it all. There's, there's a huge Italian community here in, in Toronto, and that's probably something that entices the Italian players here. But um, I think, I think fundamentally, ultimately, it was the money that was that was thrown at uh, particularly Bernadeschi. I think that deal went through last January, and the, the numbers. I think he's the highest played, paid player ever in, in the MLS. Um, to get him here was something. It was a real coup for for TFC to get him here first and foremost. Of the wages, of course, and then they signed Bernadeschi out of. Um, out of Juve's contract had run out. Uh, so to get him in as well, those two have made a huge difference to the side. And I think they're bringing the best out of one or two other players that surround them as well. So it's uh, they've a long way to go, but the, the connection here, certainly with Italy, is uh, is, is huge, yeah. Mm, and Giovincio was there previously as well. We'll talk about the Premier League in a bit, but a yeah. um, few kind of Major League soccer bits that jump to mind straight away. Wayne Rooney's gone back to DC United to manage them. And yeah. just take a look at the results. The results haven't been good. That's partly why there was a change in management and Rooney's going in. It looks like DC United probably won't make the playoffs, but what would kind of be expected of Rooney and now that he's gone back into the league again? Mm. Yeah, it is unlikely at the bottom of the table, Will. There's probably no chance of making the playoffs at this stage, but it's about building towards next season now. And what I've noticed here, there can be a dramatic turnaround in, in only a few months. I, I, I think outside some of the, uh, the, the, the DPs, the designated players, there is a, a huge gulf between real quality and maybe the lesser players within the league. So if you sign a couple of DPs that can bring one or two of the I'd say mid-run players along with you. Pretty much what, what TFC have done now. They, they've got a real buzz around the city. They've got these two big players that they've got in and, and they're getting huge gates. DC probably need to do something similar. Obviously, Benteke's gone in there now as well. 
Uh, it'll be about next season, Will. That's pretty much what it'll be about for Rooney. They need to probably start well next season because I think the, the one thing I've noticed when, when I'm following uh, the MLS, the season starts, there's a there's a, a big you know fanfare around the start of the league. And then, well, the season starts in March, or usually what it would start in March, February, March time. Through May, June and July, it's a quiet month. And in fairness, a lot of the games become meaningless. And it was something Zlatan Ibrahimovic said when he was here, a lot of the games do become meaningless because obviously there's no relegation. It's about making the playoffs. You're going to run towards the end of the season and win five out of your last seven games or some, you know, get, go on a great run. You make the playoffs and that's what it's all about, making the playoffs for a lot of these teams. So Rooney's got a big overhaul to do. They've sold one or two players. They've brought one or two in, but it, it will be about next season, about building towards a great start for him personally, maintaining through those summer months and then towards the back end of the season in the autumn to get, uh, to get into the playoffs. Were you surprised to see Rooney take that as his next step? Because he got plenty of praise, Kev, for what he was doing at Derby under like horrific circumstances because of the finances yeah. and you know, players not getting their wages. And I think he even helped out with the wages um, for a couple of the weeks at the end of last season. But Rooney generally came out of that job with Derby with a little bit of credit. And he could potentially yeah. have gone to work elsewhere, particularly in the Championship or within the Football League, decided to go back over to America. Were you surprised he made that move as his next uh, managerial post? Uh, not really, actually. No, I think he can probably concentrate now fully on his uh, on his own coaching style, away from maybe a little bit of scrutiny. There's always going to be scrutiny because it's Wayne Rooney, and, and there'll be a lot more people that will be following DC United because Wayne Rooney is there. But I know that Wayne has come over to try to develop his own coaching uh, skills, his own coaching techniques, develop himself uh, in, in every aspect of that. So I think he'll probably get a little bit more time here to develop that. And I think that's probably the most important thing. You mentioned there maybe one or two options maybe in England. He immediately ruled himself out of that Everton job before Lampard took over. There was probably one or two more jobs that he could have taken, but it still would have been at championship level where there would have been huge pressure to succeed immediately. I think at DC, I think he gets a little bit more time. I think that helps him develop more. I think that's probably the reason why he has actually taken that job, Will. Your old club Everton at the weekend got what will probably feel like an important point against Nottingham Forest. Uh, was watching the game on the TV, very late game, very late goal even from Damari Gray uh, to yeah. rescue a point. But the point was probably badly needed after the start that Everton had had to the season. Yeah, well he was getting to the stage where I, I watched the full game, I was getting to the stage and you know, once you were getting to the last 20, 30 minutes of the game before Forrest had scored. It, it, it was seeming a bit desperate, like, you know, this is a big, this this could be a big game for Everton come the end of the season. That's the way it was seeming to me. And then Forrest score, and you're thinking, this could be dire now because there'll be huge pressure going into the uh, into the next couple of weeks, particularly with the window not shut, Lampard under pressure to sign players and obviously getting results off the back of that. It was a big point in the end, a huge point, because now, you know, as I said, it's almost as if the rivals now are Forest this season. The rivals are are going to be some of the teams that's going to be at the bottom. They've got to try and break themselves away from that. There's a lot of pressure on Lampard, and and I spoke about it on the on the show with you guys at the end of the season. Uh, listening to Michael Keane, listening to um, who was who was the other guy who was being interviewed as well. I can't remember now off the top of my head. There was one or two of the Everton players talking about the pressure of being the position that they were in last season. And in all honesty, not much has changed. If anything, they've had to sell a couple of the best players. Is Anthony Gordon going to be allowed leave? That's potentially could happen in the next couple of weeks. So these results now are no-lose no games immediately. And, and I felt as though it was a big point for Everton now just going forward because there's going to be a few uh, tough, tough days ahead. The games that I saw, I watched Chelsea and I watched Forest and 
I have to say, Will, there's not an awful lot that's been created in those games, like chances, clear chances in, in those matches, even against Forest. Forest was solid at the weekend. They had a back four fairly much intact throughout the game and didn't want to give too much away. And, and Everton are going to struggle to break that, that type of team down because, I, I mean, I wouldn't even say, I was going to say they're without Calvert-Lewin, but even with Calvert-Lewin, they, they failed to really open up sides recently. So they need, they need somebody that's going to be the difference maker and, and that's going to be the difficulty if Gordon were to leave because he can give them that bit of spark and, and does give them something a little bit different. Yeah, because like even last season when Everton were getting pulled into trouble, you were thinking Richarlison is there to get them enough goals yeah. to probably keep them up and uh, Gordon was starting to emerge a little bit and then Calvert-Lewin got injured, but still Richarlison was there to score. Now he's gone, understandably, big bid for him I wonder Kev as well when it comes to Gordon if it goes to 50-60 million pounds it's going to be very difficult for Everton to turn that down Yeah and particularly with the financial situation that they're in as well you know needs must have had to sell Richarlison in the summer I don't think many Evertonians wanted to see him go but that could be the case again with Gordon it might be a case of building up off the back of that sale that's the way it might be there's going to be a lot of pressure really on Damari Gray as well who scored the goal at the weekend I really liked Amari Gray, first of all, when I saw him at Birmingham. And I've said this before, I saw him at Birmingham, saw him obviously at Leicester and saw the development in his career. But he's he's been blighted by total inconsistencies. He, he, he's not able to pull it all together a lot when he's, when he's been starting matches. So there'll be a lot of pressure on maybe Damari Gray this year, maybe even when Townsend, when he gets fit as well, to, to be that creative spark within the side because they, they need something different. Um, I saw they were trying to sign... Or they have been trying to sign, um, who's the guy from Watford, Will, I can't think of his name off the top of my head now, um, that Newcastle have been in for. So potentially they could be getting getting him in uh, and that will actually relieve a little bit of pressure on Calvert-Lewin when he does get fit. But it it is about maybe trying to get that little bit more of a creative spark within the side because they've, they've seriously lacked in the games that I've seen Everton play this season yeah Joe Pedro the player at Watford who Newcastle have been in Joe for Pedro, as well that's it. Um, yeah. it's going to probably be difficult to keep up with Newcastle's financial muscle but maybe it yeah, might be possible true, yeah. if Gordon goes to Chelsea and then that frees yeah. up some funds to potentially sign him but um, Demary Gray's pace is going to be so important though Kev as you mentioned because I thought against Aston Villa particularly Everton played remarkably deep and are now playing the three yeah. centre-backs and even their wing-backs were playing very defensively that day so the best chance they had of carrying a threat was actually getting the ball up to him and letting him be direct. And they're going to need that pace if they're going to carry something on the counter mm. this season. Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't see a, a lot of the Villa game. I saw I, I saw all the highlights from it, but I didn't I suffered it for you. Start to finish. Did you? Did you? Well, did. there you go. There you uh, go. But it was right, very early your time. Though. It was an early Saturday kickoff the week before, so I can understand if you were still in bed. Yeah, I'm, I'm normally up for the 7.30 games. I like the, I like the early kickoffs. I, I, I normally get them, but I didn't get it uh, last weekend, unfortunately. I missed, I missed out on it. But I think what you're saying there is right. I think if Everton are going to play that way and sit in deep, we, we, we saw United playing that way to an extent last night. You know, if, if you're going to play against sides that's going to have more possession than you, you're going to have to sit in deep. It's how you break against sides. And you've got to have ball carriers, which Damari Gray is. You've got to have pace, of course, which Damari Gray uh, possesses as well. Obviously, Calvert-Lewin, he's got pace, he's got aerial ability as well and, and the ability to hold up, hold the ball up. But Gordon's another one as well that, that we speak about who's a ball carrier. He's, he's maybe a little bit of, still a bit of unpredictability about him. But these are the type of players that you need if you're going to sit in Tarkovsky and... Um, uh, who, so who's the other centre-half, whether it's Mina, whether it's Keane, whether it's... Uh, 
who's your centre half? Will I'm trying to think of the top of my head here now. I have a few options. Uh, and Keane was on the bench for the the first two games. I used yeah, to work his way back into if, the team. Whoever they're, go- whoever they're going to play, certainly Tarkovsky's used to playing in a Burnley side that sit in as a back four. They don't. They don't get out too much you know it's about sitting in as a tight back four and trying to break from those positions so if you if you're going to play like that you need ball carriers and that's maybe if they were to let Gordon go that would be my only issue with that that sale they've not got another ball carrier in the side that's going to be able to get them up the pitch quickly Mm, slow start for Everton slow start for the red half of Liverpool too Um, I thought despite what Jurgen Klopp said after the game about if there'd been a few more minutes Liverpool would have got an equaliser and he felt maybe even on the balance of play Liverpool could have won I actually thought watching the game that Manchester United looked pretty comfortable winners last night. Before the last 15, 20 minutes, you, you, as soon as Salah gets the goal, there was a bit of panic setting, wasn't there? But I, I think, although Liverpool, what was it, 70% possession that they had of the ball and they, they had more shots at goal than, than United, I think, uh, throughout, it was still, I felt, a comfortable enough win for United. And as much as I say that, it's, you know, sometimes when you don't have the ball, I always feel you can control a game even though you don't, you, you're not, you've not got a, a vast majority of possession. I, I do feel that you can actually control a game. And I think United did that last night. I think the back four tucked in nice and narrow. I think as a back four, it's probably as good as, as I've seen United in a long time. I think that's something that's been mentioned. Um, you know, I, I've listened to uh, you guys this morning on uh, on OTBAM and listened to what the guys are saying about as a back four, United were, were excellent. And I think the organised, particularly with, um, with Varane and Martinez last night. I think we really saw how that partnership's going to work. But, but Liverpool overall, they could, they could have nicked something in the last 15, 20 minutes though, Well, I think that they pushed on and they looked to me like if anyone was going to score late on, it was going to be Liverpool with the way that Man United were playing. But I think for 70 minutes of that game, I think United will be fairly happy that it can be a template they can use to go forward, yeah. Manchester United decided, Kev, to drop both Maguire and Cristiano. Cristiano came on for a bit of a cameo towards the end of the game and blasted yeah. a shot into the Stratford end was about all he did after he came on. But I wonder, is this going to be a case of those two guys are going to be on the bench from now on or whether he's tempted to bring them back in? Like Maguire particularly is probably going to find it difficult to get back into the side now. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I'm still, I, I was listening to, uh, I saw it online, stuff that uh, that Jamie Carragher was saying about about Martinez and how teams are going to target him. I think last night was the perfect game for him that he was able to sit in. He didn't necessarily need to step in and Liverpool weren't weren't going direct that we saw like we saw Brentford doing or we saw Brighton doing at times. I think I think he's still going to have issues Martinez. I do think that, but I I still feel he has to be a better option than, than Harry Maguire. Harry Maguire simply has to come out of that side simply with with the pressure that's been on him as well and it's been mounting whether or not United can can sell him before the window closes, I, I'm not too sure. Cristiano Ronaldo, I, I mean, you, you, I know you mentioned him there, Will, but it, it just seems to me United have just got to pay him up. If if they want him out the door, he's not going to move. He's not going to go quietly. Just pay him up. The, the paying over the odds on transfer fees, it seems everyone that goes into the club by 20 and 30 million, that's probably about the amount they're going to have to pay uh, Ronaldo up to go. If they're going to get rid of him, that seems to be the, the only viable option, I think. Pay him up. Make make Ronaldo a free, and then there will be there'll be suitors around Europe to take him. But um, just going back to the partnership of Varane and um, and Martinez, I think it, it was it was excellent. It's probably Varane's best performance in a United shirt. I would feel that was last night. Um, but it, it's not going to be Liverpool. We're going to test them now. This is the thing we've we've seen in the last two games again. Prior to that, with Brighton and and uh, and uh, Brentford targeted the back four with pace. With, with direct running in behind, with direct balls played. 
And this is where United are going to struggle when they've got a majority of the ball. And this that, that performance last night was almost like Solskjaer in his early days when the, the, they were giving up possession, they were playing on the counter and they looked great. I, I actually like teams playing like that. I really like, like a, certainly Man United historically have, have, have always played that sort of counter-attacking play. They've always sat in quite narrow as a back four. They've been solid, but they've had pace, to ball carriers, runners in behind. I don't think Ten Hag is going to play like that. And I think if they do play open against certain sides, I don't think McTominay is going to be the answer alongside Casemiro. I don't think that because... I think if you're going to put all the pressure on Casemiro to do that job as, as a holding role in the middle of the park with, Casemiro, with, with Fred or with McTominay, whoever's going to be beside him, I don't think they're good enough to do that. So it might be a bit of, a, as I said before, a template to go forward for United. Just being narrow as a back four and try to utilise that pace that you've got within the side with Alanga, with Rashford or Martial. He was, he was excellent at times last night as well and has been excellent this season. So it might be the time that they can actually sit in a little bit and and use last night as a way to go forward. Flip side to all of that, looking at the Liverpool performance, midfield didn't function really. Um, Henderson and Milner struggled to get around with the energy that United had around the middle of the park. Their fullbacks were penned back quite a bit. Trent Alexander-Arnold had a very difficult night with Alanga, particularly in the first half. And then something that's very different, Kev, to what they did before. Sadio Mane wasn't there to make those runs in behind. Salah was having to come deep to get the ball quite a bit. And... It's just naturally with Firmino as well. He's not going to go in behind the two central defenders. In a way, it made it much easier for Manchester United to defend in the way they did last night because of how different Liverpool were to the Liverpool teams of the last few seasons. Yeah, I I, I absolutely agree with that. Sadio Mane is a huge loss for them with what he gave them. And you mentioned there Firmino. Firmino never really ran in in behind defences. What he gave them, he gave them a platform to build off. And in general, would drop deep. And you you constantly saw those diagonal runs from out to in from Salah and Mane. And that was the template of how Liverpool played. And if if they did that last night, I think they would have put, you know, or, or played that type of football, as I spoke about with Brentford and Brighton. Being a little bit more direct, that's going to hurt United because they're going to struggle. Whereas I think they give them a bit of an easy ride. I think for all that um, Malassia was excellent up against Salah, I thought, I thought he enjoyed his defensive role right up against him. But as you say, when Salah was dropping deep, it was easy for him to go in. And because he knew there was no one that was going to go in behind him, Milner wasn't really going to make that run from deep, and neither was Henderson into the into the right channel. So it was easy for him in, in that respect. Don't get me wrong, he's still up against a world-class player and he's got to do that job. And I thought he was excellent at just doing that defensive role. But losing Mane, as, it, it, that is such a huge loss for Liverpool. And we knew it was going to be that way. Diaz is not the sort of player that's going to continuously run in behind He's not going to be that type that's going to come from into out consistently. He's a, such a goal threat. Um, probably technically he might be better than Mane. That's the way that, that I would see it. But he doesn't carry the threat continuously for 90 minutes that, that Mane carried. And that's that's the difference, I feel, when, when you don't have him in the team. They'll get to a point. Darwin Nunes will be back from his suspension in a couple of games. These injuries yeah. will go away. To be missing seven first-team he's players. A, he's another one. Sorry, Will. Just with Nunes last night, the physicality that he would have given them up against the, the, those two centre-halves that enjoyed that battle last night. I think that would have been a different battle if he would have played last night. But again, it's all lifts and butts, isn't it? Yeah, no, definitely. But you looked across their bench and with the exception of, bring, of being able to bring on young Carvalho to come in to make a bit of a difference, they didn't have great options on the bench because of the injuries they have currently. How concerning is the start for Liverpool or do we expect that when they get those players back, it's just going to get back more towards where they've been in recent seasons? 
I, I think the most concerning part for Liverpool, particularly last night, was the, how they were they were outran in the game. I, I, I think I read somewhere that United had almost double the amount of sprints than Liverpool, or certainly a vast majority more more uh, more sprints than Liverpool all over the pitch, covering more ground. That's so unlike Liverpool. Liverpool outrun teams. They're able to 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 drive over the top of them just with the physical attributes that a lot of those players have. And we we never saw that last night from Liverpool. So. That will come. Klopp will get them right in that respect. It might just take a few weeks before we start to see that type of thing clicking, fitness levels rise and, and they start to get a bit more comfortable. But there's, there's been a bit of an overhaul. There's been a lot of change in the last year, hasn't there? Certainly up front, the three that we we had Liverpool down as every, excuse me, every single week, Firmino, Salah, Mane. Firmino's going to be a player that's going to be a bit in and out this season. Losing Mane, Diaz is still settling. Um, they don't have Jota at the moment as well, who made a huge difference to Liverpool. Uh, huge difference to Liverpool last season. So those injuries, as you, as you say, once they get back, Liverpool will be okay. But as we've seen in recent seasons, the league could be beyond them. They could be chasing. Uh, you know, after the World Cup, the, the World Cup's going to be a huge distraction for a lot of players, and it's going to be a killer for the Premier League clubs. And when they get back after the World Cup, when you're into January and February and beyond that, we may see the best of Liverpool then. But ultimately, it may be too little too late because we've seen in recent seasons that when you're playing catch-up against the likes of City, they're not going to drop too many points. Most impressive win of the weekend, in many ways, was Leeds against Chelsea. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea are blunt up front and they're going to probably have to bring someone in and maybe Aubameyang as the player is going to be signed as their new number nine. But Leeds, hell of a start to the season. You know, After Jesse Marsh yeah. just kind of steadied the ship and there were plenty of question marks about Jesse Marsh when he came in because naturally, I think Leeds supporters were very attached to Bielsa for everything that had happened yeah. and kind of the, you know, the joy of getting out of the championship with them. And there were plenty of question marks about Jesse Marsh coming in. But Leeds have started this season pretty well. No, in- incredibly well. Well, I-, I really enjoyed watching them. I-, I-, I against Chelsea, and I've enjoyed watching them. And as you say, the the, the task of replacing Bielsa was, was huge. Um, so, I mean, you'd probably say he's he's Leeds' most um, most admired manager probably since Don Revy. Certainly, I- that's the way it seems to me. And he- he- Leeds fans put him right up there with with Don Revy. So. I think for Jesse Marsh to come in and replace him and, and the task that he's got, it, that's uh, it's no mean feat and it's going to be difficult for him to, to get that consistency that Bielsa had for such a long time. But I think there was a lot of negativity around him simply because of his accent as well, Will. That, that's the thing, you know, there, there was a bit, a bit of a laughing stock around Bob Bradley when he went into Swansea a few years ago. I think um, Armas, the assistant manager that was at United, there was a little bit of negativity around him. I think that was within their own camp many suggesting that he's, he, he was Ted Lasso and things mm-hmm. like this. But I think, you know, you're judging someone by an accent. It, it, it's wrong. You're judging someone by how they look. I know it's, it's, it's absolutely wrong. And I think that was the feeling. And I, I get the feeling as well. There's certainly within scouting networks, there's, there's, a, there's ill feeling towards North American players, much as the same would be across many leagues. I think there's a feeling towards Irish players as well. There's a negative feeling around Irish players that are technical, technically not up to it. And I think certainly when you see uh, Brendan Aronson and um, and Tyler Adams, Tyler Adams will he's someone that I've admired for a really long time. Particularly when I've watched the qualification for, for the World Cup, seen him play for the US in the midfield. He is the main player for the US. I know they've got Pulisic, who you know gives them the creative spark, and Aronson that gives them the energy in the side. But Tyler Adams is the player that really makes them tick, and I think he'll be certainly one to watch across the Premier League season into the World Cup. But 
for Lee's to be able to sign him, and I think he's gone under the radar a bit playing at, at Leipzig. M- many people won't really uh, have, have known too much of him, but what a player he, I, I think he will become. I think he holds his position really well. I think he's a player that controls the ball really well, takes it in tight areas, gets his team out of trouble, and also has that high, high energy around him. And I think, I, I mean, I was down at the MLS All-Star game um, a couple of weeks ago, Will, and uh, it was down in Minnesota or in, uh, in Minneapolis. So I was talking to Adrian Heath, who's... Um, Minnesota's coach and he, he was telling me about the amount of players that he's put in to uh, to English clubs particularly six or seven English clubs that he would have regular contact with who's turned the nose up uh, Alfonso Davies Alfonso Davies was going to go to or was could have gone to actually a championship club now and they said he's not good enough I mean Alfonso Davies now he's worth probably 100 150 million there's no better fullback in the world than Davies and I think that's the feeling towards North American players. And I think, as I said before, that's the feeling towards Irish players as well. There's that snobbishness almost that they're not good enough before they've really had a chance to review and have a look at them. And I think Adams now and Aronson are proving that players are good enough to to play in the Premier League with that high energy approach, with that um, technical ability, of course, that they have. And I think they'll make a difference for Leeds this season. And I think Jesse Marsh deserves a lot of credit. I know it's only early days, but watching them at the weekend, the energy that they play with, and it's so exciting to watch. I, I thought it was a brilliant game to watch. I thought Chelsea contributed to it as well early on. But once Leeds got the second goal, it, it, it looked unlikely that, that Chelsea were going to get anything from the game. And I, I, I just, I, I really admire what Leeds have done this season, particularly with the pressure that Marsh and, and the club has been under. Well, Kev, from Jesse Marsh coming in to replace Marcelo Bielsa, what we really want your view on is Kevin McStay coming in to replace James Horn <laughs> as the Mayo manager for next season. Well, he's there for four years. Yeah. It's, a, it's a three plus yeah. one, I think is how uh, Mayo announced it. I mean, obviously, look, Mayo have come up a little bit short, uh, semi-final stage. Um, and then you're looking at the final the year before and all the hope there was uh, under Horn and potentially winning in All-Ireland. And then they come up short against Tyrone. What's the hope about yeah. McStay coming in now? Well, well, first of all, I, I want to wish him all the very best. Kevin and his staff, I think, uh, I personally, I think it's a very good appointment. Uh, I know how well thought of he, he is over there in, in Mayo as well with, with everything that he's achieved as well. So I just, I, I think every every Mayo fan, we all we all have hope and maybe it is the hope that, ki- that, that does kill you in the end, but we've got so much talent and maybe it is about building. I'm glad that he's got those at least three years to build from. I think it, it might be a, a two-year uh, build or, or, over that time. Next season might be the time to get uh, to blood one or two players so so Kevin can have a look at all those players. Uh, and then the year after, what, 2024 20, now, it might be that that might be the time when we see Mayo having another real crack at an All-Ireland. But I'm, I'm, I'm delighted it's been sorted because it seems to have dragged on for a while. Uh, I think it is the right appointment. I think he, with his experience, with what he brings, he's, he's, you know, he's not won too many fans within the Mayo County Board over the years because of how outspoken he's been. But I think it needs a strong character. It needs somebody that's going to go in there and, and lead uh, and lead that group. The, the talent is still there. The talent will always be produced, and I'm just, I'm hopeful. Will that's the way I look at it. I'm hopeful. You have to be hopeful. That's the way it is as a Mayo fan. Are you saying you didn't enjoy the drama that we were all enjoying, where there was four or five different packages being put together, and we were watching these management teams being assembled and then being announced, and who was going to take over? Look, I didn't have the stress of being a Mayo fan during all of it, but I found this no, like, I, I, it's I, like I the X factor. I, I don't enjoy all that. I, I honestly, I'd rather things were done under the radar. Um, and then all of a sudden there's an appointment made. Um, 
I think due diligence certainly has to be done. I think you have to listen to to everyone with the ideas that they've got on the coaching staff and you know and everyone that they're looking to bring in with them. But when it's it's done so publicly, I, I don't know. It's everyone wants everybody wants to laugh at Mayo. That's the thing. Everybody wants to laugh. You can't get away from the fact is of what has been achieved over the last ten years. Yes, it's been. It's been unlucky at times. It's been, you know, it's been poor play at times. It's been bad, you know, bad management of games at times. But for the success and the continued success and the the days out that I've had following the team, the days out that all supporters have had following the team, I always felt absolute pride in in the team that was going before us. But it it, it does seem a bit of a sideshow because people want to mock want to mock the county board. People want to mock the the team. People want to mock Mayo in general. And maybe rightly so at times, but uh, I prefer things done under the radar, Will, personally. And I'm just, as I said, I'm just glad that Kevin McStay now has been appointed and and the, the whole panel, the whole county can move forward now and hopefully have a, have a big push for an All-Ireland over the next couple of years. Well, whatever about some of the presenters here, Kev, you won't find me slagging off the people of Mayo. You could very well... Well, there's one or two others on that show. One or two others on your show do, Will. That's my problem, you know. You've got a couple of those ginger fellas in there that love to mock Mayo. And uh, anyway, I won't, I won't mention any names anyway. Well, look, make sure that Owen Sheehan is somewhere to stay if his travels bring him to I Toronto. I didn't say one. Owen. Did I, did I say Owen? No, I didn't mention any names. You didn't have to be specific. Uh, he's gone. Owen's a goner anyway, isn't he? You know, he's, I, I, I've not even spoken to Owen yet, but the, I got the shock last week when I when I heard Owen was leaving. You know, he's built himself up. He's built his whole... His whole um, the whole persona of, of of him being this great presenter now and everything, and he, he just ditches it, walks away into into the sunset. You know, fair play to him. Yeah, shameful. Now, if he does find his way into Canada, I presume you put him up for a night, will you? I can come. He can come stay with me. Of course, he can. Yeah. Okay. See, I've yeah. already I've already got on somewhere to stay uh, when he goes through Toronto, <laughs> a lovely city, and uh, somewhere he should definitely visit along the way. Kev, great to hear you're uh, keeping well and going well. Thanks a million for joining us. Oh, it's good. Thanks, Will. Take it easy, guys. Thank you. Thanks to Kevin Kilban. We'll be back with Miguel Delaney in just a moment. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. Don't miss Southampton versus Man United this Saturday. Live only on BT Sport. You are very welcome back to the football show. Football here on OTB is brought to you by Sky. Watch over 400 games this season from the Premier League, the Women's Super League, Scottish Premiership and the EFL all available live on Sky Sports. Now live on Sky Sports last night was the game between Manchester United and Liverpool in the Premier League. United winning by two goals to one. Delighted to say we are now joined by the chief football writer with the Independent, Miguel Delaney. Miguel, how are you getting on? Not too bad, not too bad, thanks. Um, Last night, you were at Old Trafford. Um, one of the more dysfunctional Liverpool performances, particularly in midfield. They had issues in the middle of the park all night and a limp enough defeat for them in the end against a Manchester United team who looked pretty regenerized, re-energised even uh, compared to how they'd played in the first two games of the season. Yeah, how quickly things change. You know, the baton of crisis passes to Liverpool. Um, I suppose... Sorry, I'll turn that off. <laughs> I, I suppose... Um, I mean, it's a bit much to call it a crisis yet. But at the very least, there are a lot of issues for Klopp to solve. And it's interesting, I suppose, given the recent history of the two clubs, how what so stood out about United was their energy and aggression intensity, which was everything that Liverpool were lacking. And Klopp said after the game they had control for most of it, which is probably true, but it was kind of, a, um, I think as Wenger might say, a sterile control, in that it never looked like they were really going to push United through. Um, and, and he said afterwards uh, he, he, he thought an equaliser wouldn't have been a surprise. I think 
most people in the stadium, and even those not Manchester United fans, would have disagreed with that because United have felt relatively comfortable, which is remarkable given the situation they were in last week. Um, I mean, as regards United themselves, it was a very impressive performance. Uh, I do wonder, without getting ahead of ourselves, saying that they're completely out of the woods, I do wonder how much of it is circumstantial. Obviously, because it's Liverpool, there's always going to be an emotional response. And it was one of those games where you could really tell like they were... Um, they were relishing every challenge in a way they weren't against Brentford, purely because they had a point to prove. I think that was especially true of players like Diego Delot, uh, Bruno Fernandes, Alessandro uh, Martinez is absolutely loving it from the start. Um, but another element to that as well, I suppose, is one of the big things that was noticeable with both Brentford and Brighton, it's, remar- it's remarkable to say this, given Liverpool over the last few years, but they were pressing United in a way that Liverpool couldn't really, and partly because of that midfield you talk about. And it meant that United were able to play through each time. It also meant that De Gea could uh, frequently knock it long, whereas against both Brentford and and, um, and Brighton, he, he was forced to play it short a lot more. Um, so it, it makes this weekend, although, I mean, it's, that's one thing about the start of the Premier League season. Uh, it's actually been it's been breakneck from the uh, from the very start, and uh, as soon as one weekend's massive storylines are done, you're straight on to the next one because it all feeds into it. Suddenly, we're we're, gonna, we're keen to see whether Manchester United can prove it was the real deal by beating Southampton, which is a remarkable statement in itself. Um, and also, Liverpool suddenly the pressure grows to get that first win. Yeah, and the pressure grows particularly on Liverpool at this stage as well, Miguel, because if you look at the way that Man City have accumulated points over the last six, seven seasons particularly, and particularly under Pep Guardiola, like to have dropped seven points this early in the season with the start that Liverpool had, particularly where they would have expected to win against Fulham and Crystal Palace, it's not crisis point at all after three games. But still, giving up seven points when generally you can't afford to give too many away with the way the title races have been in recent seasons this stuttering start gives them not a whole lot of margin for error for even the rest of the season. Yeah, that's it. Uh, now, the one caveat I suppose to that is that it mightn't be as pressurised this season because we have the great unknown of the World Cup on the horizon. And that could play havoc with everything, no matter how or anyone's ahead, even City. In fact, that's one that's one area where City's actual strengths could become a potential weakness because they're so good. They'll have so many starters in the World Cup that the starters in the World Cup could well find themselves fatigued by January, February, and that could cause an opening in the title race. So from that perspective, I don't think falling behind is necessarily as much of an issue as it would be in previous seasons, but certainly it's not ideal, and Liverpool need to get, they need to get players back, and need to get points back uh, on the table. Well, Liverpool fans have been crying out all summer about a lack of reinforcement in midfield, and in some ways we saw that coming back to haunt last night, because generally they weren't able to press in the same way because they had Milner and Henderson in midfield, and Again, I don't think Liverpool would have wanted Milner to be in some of the attacking positions he was in the first half of last night when they did have a lot of possession at different times, but very rarely was it someone breaking from midfield into a good position in the box. It was a very on-Liverpool-like performance in their midfield, and a lot of that has to go down to the personnel that were deployed. I know some of that is down to injury, but if you're playing Henderson and if you're playing Milner, you're not going to get the same dynamism you would with some of the other midfield options they have. Yeah, it was one of those games. I mean, Henderson has looked past his best for some time, although still obviously a very, very useful option. Milner, I mean, I suppose he's so far... I mean, this is inevitable given his age. He's so far past his best, he can't really see it anymore, which is a bit harsh. But I mean, I, I, I think at this point, Milner um, 
remains a useful squad option, someone's a villain, but not someone you want to put in midfield at this stage of his career. But that also makes it all the more surprising then because um, the, I think the one Liverpool midfielder available who you could say is in his prime, which is Fabinho, was left in the bench. Now, one of the rationales there was um, apparently that he's, Klopp's been worried about how he's been getting caught on the counter in recent games. Um, but, but but even then, just com- compared to what they had, it was just so pedestrian. And as you say, Milner was popping up in all sorts of positions. It was quite odd from that perspective as well. And that it was as if Milner had the kind of roaming role. And while he, okay, he's still obviously immensely physically fit for his age, that doesn't necessarily tra- translate into prime kind of effectiveness uh, in, in in that midfield position because it was oftentimes when he was on the ball and not actually doing that much with it. It was, certainly wasn't the Liverpool midfield as we come to associate them. Um, and it, yeah, it, it is a concern. Again, it has to be put into the into the um, into the context of so many absences. But but even that, there are because so, it's not just about the midfield with Liverpool. I think one of the biggest issues for me over the last three games, it does feel as if people have kind of or opposition sides figured out how to play against Liverpool's wing backs, who've pretty much been kind of um, I don't know you might call them the afterburners of the side. Uh, for the past five years, whereas I mean, when the when the two wing backs start flying forward, it, it just makes Liverpool a completely different proposition. Yet they've been subdued in that way. Um, first, 20, has, first twenty five minutes, Miguel, particularly for Trent Alexander Arnold over on that side, where you know clearly Alanga was deployed out there to run and to try and occupy Trent. He had a miserable period, particularly up to the point when he got booked, which was 25 minutes into the game. He had real problems over on that side. Now, second half, when Liverpool had a bit more of the ball, he got forward a bit more. But the first half hour, 25 minutes, was really hard going for him. Well, I mean, over the last two, three years, one of the big debates in football, particularly around the England national team, has been whether Alexander-Arnold is actually a good defender, with Klopp, of course, addressing this himself. That's remained open to question. But this season... It feels like everyone's putting it to the ultimate test by really targeting him. United repeatedly went for it last night. And Alexander-Arnold always looked on the edge. And the thing about that is, once he's forced into that position, it means you're not getting the best out of him, you're not getting, which, which are his attacking talents. Uh, so suddenly it's a dilemma. For, whatever about all his uh, personnel issues, I think which every, everyone would accept, means this can't be put into the kind of extreme criticism that you'd usually, <laughs> usually say in these situations. But... But it, but it does give Klopp problems to solve. It's it's something to figure out now. Yeah, well, with Liverpool, I think they've always traded off those defensive liabilities within his game for what he can offer up at the other end of the field. And he did put in some good crosses in the second half. I can understand where Southgate's coming from, though, where Rhys James possibly feels more of a complete wing-back. And even before the emergence of Rhys James, he always had a kind of tendency to go for Kieran Trippier or for Kyle Walker because of their positioning, because of their recovery pace as opposed to playing Trent Alexander-Arnold. Even when Walker took in as one of the three centre-backs, he never seemed to fancy Trent within the England system. Well, I mean, that ultimately comes down to, I suppose, just a, a different interpretation of what a fullback is. I think Southgate would have a very traditional um, interpretation, which, which is a fullback is, first of all, there to defend, uh, even, even allowing for the attacking dimension of modern game whereas Klopp I mean I'm not sure you can even really call them fullbacks they're really wingbacks and, if, and like pre, I remember talking to a Premier League coach two years ago about this about how Liverpool play and I said well, one of the great difficulties of playing Liverpool was basically when they're at their absolute peak was that basically it's the, what happens when they're at their best in that regard is the two number eights who at that point I suppose would have been Fabinho and Henderson and the two wingbacks basically form this line really high up the pitch that pens you in Whereas now that's completely broken, basically. 
Maguire, another England defender and Manchester United's captain. A, a ballsy move in some ways by Eric Ten Hag to decide three games in, I'm going to bench this guy and he's going to sit on the bench entirely for a game against Liverpool. But is it a case now where Lissandro and Varane probably are first-choice centre-backs and Maguire might not see a lot of game time from here? Uh, it feels like that's going to be the case. Of course, uh, Ten Hag was diplomatic after the game, saying that... Um, uh, Maguire and Ronaldo will play a role in the short future. I assume he went in the short term. Mm. But uh, it's difficult not to see the direction of travel here, especially given how cumbersome Maguire has looked on the ball. And this it, is going to be a ball-playing team. Martinez is good enough. Varane's even better on it. And even Martinez seemed so much more suited to having Varane beside him. Now, Martinez, I think there's a bit of an iron there. And this comes back to what we're saying about how maybe some of this Liverpool, some of this win was circumstantial for United. But in a weird way, Martinez's bigger challenges aren't going to come in the big games because of the, the tactical nature of those games where they're more open. It, might, it, might, it will suit him more. The more difficult ones maybe he's going to, when he's going to get balls launched at him by some of the lesser sides, exactly as Brighton and, uh, and Brentford did. Uh, but for the moment, it certainly it, it offered promise last night. Although we could well see more changes there because the, I reported earlier today that Manchester United are actually considering a ball-playing goalkeeper. Now, this is, of course... The issue that Pep Guardiola had six years ago with Joe Hart, uh, Bravo, and then um, until he eventually got Ederson, because it is the kind of the, it's the foundation uh, pillar of any sort of team like this. They need it. They need a goalkeeper that can properly play at the back. Last night it suited United to launch it long, but for the way Ten Hag plays, that's kind of unsustainable. So I think it's good. It's good. There's still um, still a fair bit of uncertainty there. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we'll probably see. Martinez and Varane being the, the partnership going forward. Yeah, you've been reporting around Kevin Trapp and almost the assumption I think Manny would have felt that Trapp would be coming in as a backup to David De Gea, which is an issue United have right now since Henderson has gone back out. But you feel that potentially they could be trying to sign Trapp as a first choice goalkeeper as opposed to De Gea's backup then? I I mean this is me speculating hmm. um, I, if, if, if they get one of the two goalkeepers um, I, I would imagine it's going to be one of those situations where Almost a little bit like actually when Carrius first went in at Liverpool. Um, not to say they're the same, but um, where they, they for the first month or so it'll be kind of putting them in, easing them in, maybe they're using them in kind of League Cup games, something like that, until eventually, uh, maybe after a month or a month or two, Ten Hag has to make a decision. Interesting. I mean, again, we saw with David De Gea the graphic went up on Sky Sports. I think about an hour into the game, and you've already mentioned the fact that. Not one of his kickouts went short. Um, there was a feeling that maybe earlier in the season the ball would be rolled to Maguire, it would start from the back and they would work their way out. Pretty much De Gea went longer than 30, 40 yards with every single kickout last night. It was a very different approach to what they'd done up until this point. Well, I suppose, I mean, the, uh, the second goal again, or the second goal for Brentford, should I say, um, was, I suppose, the big signal about the danger of that because it was so, I mean, it, was, it remains remarkable at the moment of the season for me and uh, to see a Manchester United team like that. And I suppose that's testament to the, the response last night because they looked so fearful and hesitant when De Gea tried to pass it out for that goal. And obviously they've had to ride it off. But yeah, that, that's not sustainable in the medium term or even the short term. Cristiano, 
I wonder what the role becomes now. Um, as you say, Tanakh mentioned after the game that he's still part of their uh, short-term future. We'll see how short-term that's going to be. Cristiano got to come on for a bit of a cameo, but generally Rashford's movement was good, could perhaps have had a second goal when he went past Gomez early in the second half. He created plenty of opportunities when he was dribbling at that Liverpool defence at times. Alanga, before he came off, was getting plenty of joy over on the left-hand side. Um, it's been commented many times that it seems that Bruno Fernandes prefers to have players who move a bit more in front of him. Where does Cristiano now fit in? Or does he even still fit in? Uh, I think for all the public di- diplomacy, and even though uh, the, the Glazer hierarchy would prefer Ronaldo to stay because of his commercial value, uh, I think at this point, it, it, it most people are realising, not least Ronaldo himself, it would be better if he moved. Uh, I think just having him, having a figure like that as a sub it doesn't usually work. And even then, I mean, it was quite instructive last night in terms of how um, Ten Hag used Ronaldo because at that point of the game, United actually needed someone to hold the ball up, someone to do a team role, something selfish. What, Ronaldo got the ball and tried kind of speculative, speculative long shots, looking for his glory moment. And, and, and again, I mean, it, it, it didn't harm United by the end, but it was a potential risk there when they needed basically better team play. Yeah, he puts the ball in the Stratford end at one point when United are on the counter-attack and I think the game had just gone into injury time. The sensible option was to hold it up, get it back to one of the midfielders and keep possession for a few minutes. But instead, as you said, Cristiano Ronaldo decides to have a shot from an almost impossible angle. United are probably going to change shape maybe a little bit with Casemiro coming in as well. Fred was one of the players who was dropped from last weekend, but Fred and Casemiro currently play as a double pivot together with Brazil. So they are an option to play together. Maybe it's McTominay who drops out. Maybe it's Fred who drops out. But Christian Eriksen's role I thought was quite interesting because a lot of his best work is done a little bit further up the field, but he's been playing a little bit further back to help out the system as he did last night. Do we expect that Eriksen plays a little bit deeper when Casemiro comes into the team or how do you see this midfield looking now when they've got Casemiro now? I think it much depends on how Casemiro adapts. I think Eriksen's been put back there because he's one of the few really kind of technically adept um, midfielders that, that Manchester United have because they, 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 they need that sort of control further back. Uh, Casemiro offers more. But again, I mean, I think it should be stressed. There's absolutely no doubt about Casemiro's quality. He's one of the best defensive midfielders. and Sorry, has been one of the best defensive midfielders in the world for over half a decade now. But um, that's been in a situation where he's had uh, Tony Crowe's and Luka Modric in front of him, two of the best passers of, of the modern game. So there's going to require some adaptation there, which means... Uh, unless basically something fits together for Ten Hag straight away, we might see a little bit of experimentation over the next few games there. But And again, experimentation in a fairly risky situation because United can't afford too much experimentation. Yeah, and look, there's a lack of progressive passers at the club at Manchester right now. It's no coincidence they were looking at Frankie de Jong and Adrian Rabiot to come into the team and then they go to Casemiro who's a totally different profile they don't really have too many players to progress the ball all that well. Like, even when Real Madrid were buying the players in that are going to effectively become Casemiro's um, replacements, even though that wasn't the intention, in Chiuameni and in Camavinga, they're passers who can bring the ball a bit more forward. And they've always had Valverde or Kroos or Modric around. Like, United might still be looking for a midfielder in the coming week to actually get someone to slot in there because I'm not sure if Fred or McTominay are the right passer to have in beside Casemiro? Well, even this morning, I mean, it's interesting. Like last week, I was told any prospect of De Jong is completely off, 100% off. Whereas this morning, suddenly the two roamings, well, it's 98% off. There's still some some allowance because there is a little bit of uncertainty about what's going to happen to him with Barcelona. I mean, I'd be very surprised if 
De Jong, Dylan of Manchester United at this point. But in this market, in this window, sorry, should I say, uh, who knows? Um, there's still a little bit of interest there. Uh, from that perspective, though, it's clear that the, the Glazers have actually decided to up the budget now because I remember being told a few weeks, weeks ago that the Young budget was basically it and Casemiro, you would have expected to cover a lot of that. Whereas um, it seems from the start of the season, they are willing to uh, to to go much higher given there's, there's also this interest in Anthony from Ajax as well. Yeah, the Anthony one last night kind of sparked up a little bit again by his agent and then his agent deleted an Instagram story which he had up, which was himself and Anthony watching the Man United-Liverpool game and looking like they were almost celebrating the United result. And he deleted the first one, which was them watching it on the TV. But because Anthony has now stepped out of training at Ajax, because the clubs have been in talks most of the summer, it seems that's one that could well happen. Well, as, as someone put it to me today, when it gets to that situation where someone is kind of training on their own and makes makes it that clear they want to leave. It's very, very rare they actually stay at their club just because it, there's, there's so much potential for difficulty. Uh, now, it doesn't always happen, of course. So, some come back and come back into the fold and kind of knuckle down. Um, I suppose that, that does make Ajax's situation or their position a bit more complicated. But then on the other side, Ajax have no need to sell. They've al- they already feel they've moved on enough this summer. Uh, but they do have Hakim Ziyech likely coming back because he's in negotiation uh, w- with the club from Chelsea. Um, so that may create an opening. But but certainly Ajax, um, they've set their price and it's up to Manchester United to meet it. Now, and, and if they do, again, it's it's another pretty high expenditure. And, I mean, Anthony's an interesting one. Like everyone's seen the clips. There's clearly huge talent there. But it's, I suppose, it's a it's fairly limited evidence just because his career has been so brief anymore. And whether whether you should be spending that much on a, on a young player with that limited experience is a big question in itself. Um, but, I mean, I suppose... Ten Hag knows him better than anyone. Yeah, well, especially coming out of the year, Davisi is very different to bringing in Casemiro, who is very much a proven entity because of his uh, time at Real Madrid and everything he's achieved at international and club level. Um, it'll be intriguing to see what happens uh, with Manchester United over the rest of the window. I kind of wonder about the Frankie de Jong one, because again, it seems to be a little bit up in the air. I mean, Barcelona still have not been able to register Jules Koundé. We'll see what happens with Aubameyang, which we're going to be talking about in a moment as well. But they're going to need outs uh, before the end of this transfer window. So maybe de Jong might become available purely from that point of view. Manchester United's pursuit has been long Miguel when it comes to him this summer and I have to think there must have been some encouragement for them at some point I know the narrative seems to be that he keeps on knocking Manchester United away and why did Manchester United stay interested Manchester United surely had to get some indication from his camp at some point that he would be open to joining them or they would have pulled out of this race a long time ago Asher look I mean like he had his uh, his breakout season of his career under Ten Hag at Ajax so I, I mean <laughs> I don't think people can seriously believe that I mean, for, for all it's been made out that Ten ha- or that um, De Jong wants to stay at Barcelona, and I, I do think there's an element there. People can't seriously believe that United are going into this blind because Ten Hag and De Jong know each other so well. It's just, it's, it's just not realistic. They haven't been in contact. Um, so from that perspective, obviously, Ten Hag has been pushing, has been given sufficient encouragement. If he was told an absolute outright no, then I suppose it, 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 would, it, it would have ended much sooner. I mean, I mean, someone put this to me about a month ago. That even allowing for all of Manchester United's dysfunction in the market, given Ten Hag knows De Jong so well, not even they would indulge this if there was absolutely no chance. 
Well, you were there at Old Trafford last evening and it's uh, interesting timing from the Glazers to open up the checkbook right at the end of the transfer window at a time when there are large fan protests and the fan protests outside the ground very considerable last night. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose not as hostile as previous occasions like when they got a game actually postponed. Um, and also the uh, empty seats didn't transpire, I suppose. But this was, I mean, to... to uh, Give United fans their due. This was a different type of protest. It was a very noisy one. Um, they made themselves heard. Uh, as to whether it will have effect, I mean, from what I've, I mean, there is of course a bigger d- topic of discussion here. Uh, that's that's really for another kind of twenty-five minute uh, conversation. But as to whether the the, the Glazers are, have officially have the club for sale, that's never the case, really. But from speaking to people in the last week, I I, I did a piece on it last week. Um, there are a lot of consortiums who believe that there's a better chance now than ever to actually buy Manchester United. But the Glazers would want a very high price, which is uh, $6 billion. Um, and while I don't, think that, I, I don't think there's any immediate prospect of a sale, just from what I've been told, I think there could be a sense of um, grounds being tested here from all parties uh, and to see how this situation develops. But I mean, say even if the Glazers were to decide to sell tomorrow, which they're not going to, um, it would it would not be a quick process. Uh, so I mean, I think even due diligence and that and that in a situation where the economic climate isn't so volatile would take six months on United. Uh, it's going to be, even that would be longer. But but certainly, and I suppose the, the the fan protests feed into this. It does feel there's just. There, there, there are a few different threads to this now, uh, much more so than uh, ever before. Where previously, the Glazers had uh, had had no interest in selling, and also this should be noted as well. The, you, usually, any any, pro, any any reports that there was a potential sale or they were for sale were very quickly denied by the club. Whereas that was not the case this time. I mean, I I put it to the club last week and got a no comment. No comment is always intriguing around about this time, especially when they potentially have to declare to the New York Stock Exchange if there is a viable bid for shares out of the club as well. Silence sometimes can be golden when there are people circling around trying to purchase. One of the purchases I want to ask you about before we finish up is Aubameyang because Thomas Tuchel was pretty open after the game at the weekend against Leeds that they're blunt up front now that Lukaku has left and they don't have a whole lot of options up front. They are in pretty strongly, it would appear, to try and sign Aubameyang, but with a very high price tag, it would seem, at €30 million. Euro. Is this one we expect to get over the line in the next week? Yeah, I think so, just because Chelsea, I mean, they've got issues of their own. Tuchel's made his own agitation clear, and they do need a finisher. Um, yeah, I, I would expect that to be on, if not without a little bit of uh, negotiation since. But I mean, in that context, it does make, I think, the pursuit of Anthony Gordon from Everton a little bit, all the more, all the more odd. But I mean, he, he's, as we reported in the independent today, my colleague, Richard Jolly, Gordon has said he wants to go. Uh, I'm, I mean, Chelsea seem to have a huge budget this summer. Uh, I'm not sure how that would affect it, but, but yeah, I, I do think that oh, the Aubameyang one looks very likely. Mm, it is a lace potential spending splurge from them. If they were to go for Gordon, Fafana and Aubameyang over the next week, considering the money they've already uh, spent during this window too, they could well go north of 200 million pounds here. Yeah, yeah, um, and I mean that's almost like something from the Abra- from the very first Abramovich days. <laughs> People expected that to be gone, but maybe I suppose there's a sense of maybe from the the new ownership that it's also about um, a classic speculating to accumulate as well. They need to make a statement, need to show what the new Chelsea are about, and need a, vi- a viable 
like a commercially viable team, which actually isn't, I suppose, ironically, at least in kind of um, commercial spirit, isn't too far from Barcelona. Um, although obviously the situation is different there. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, nine more days before the transfer window slams shut, as they say. Miguel, thanks a million as always. Cheers, no problem. Football on Off The Ball With Sky Don't miss Southampton versus Man United This Saturday Live only on BT Sport